Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Thought it might be fun to switch things up a little bit on today's episode of Fantasy NBA Today. We've been doing lessons learned. I, I think we've done nine of them in 11 shows. Today's show 12 of the offseason. And I thought maybe we could just veer into one of the teams. I don't know that we need to go in any particular order. I know that from an organization standpoint, it would be smart to just do every lesson learned and then segue into team breakdowns or just general team fantasy reviews. But you know what? I don't don't care. I'm going to do this the way I want to, and I feel like I've done a bunch of lessons and my brain wants a little respite from them, so we're going to do a team or two. And I want to talk to other people, get some of their lessons learned, and we'll intersperse those throughout the podcast as we move forward. In any event, welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. It is Tuesday. Playoffs roll on. We'll get some totals thoughts. Mostly. I gotta keep saying, man, you get into these closeout scenarios and things just get a little bit different. Pace changes, game style changes. We have a good read on things. And then the only way that you can almost where where you can kind of say, okay, even if it's a closeout game, games of sixes and sevenses, they tend to just be real grinder types. But anyway, Atlanta's in Miami. Heater up three games to one on this series. Miami's favored by seven, total of 217 and a half. Let's just dive straight on into the action there. Miami beat the crap out of Atlanta. Trying to be kind about it. In Atlanta in that last ballgame after the, the Hawks were able to squeak out a game three win. Beat them by 24 in a game that Miami did their part to get this thing close to the posted total, which was 220-ish. Uh, but Atlanta did not. And thusly, the game went under by quite a lot but we're gonna do what we always do and that's analyze how it got there Miami was actually pretty close to where they should be they had about 108 109 possessions so their number was pretty much right on the money did not turn the ball over didn't get to the foul line all that much but because of the super low turnovers the number of actual field goal attempts was really high at 92 Hawks turned it over quite a few more times at 15 turnovers and got out rebounded by seven so Miami just had so many more opportunities in this game. Uh, Atlanta, about a about 100 possessions or so. You roll all the numbers together. They were bad at the free throw line. They were bad from the field. They weren't particularly good with turnovers. Still no, no full strength, Clint Capella. He's trying to play through it best he can, but he's not really there. Bogdan Bogdanovich and playing through a sore right knee. And the Heat have just done an amazing job of locking down on Trey Young. So... I don't really see where Atlanta finds a consistent victory in this series. I know they squeezed one out, but that's probably about as good as it gets, especially with Trey playing this poorly, or really Miami just executing this well. All that to say that this one had about 208 possessions. So getting near 222 or 220, excuse me, that was the number on that last ball game. Getting near 220 was always going to be kind of hard as you work deeper into a playoff series. It's doable, but it's it's not a given. And 
So when you look at this next one, where the total's 217 now, it's come off the opening numbers, started at 218, it's been kind of ticking down. I think we get it. I think we get it. Um, they're probably going to be about 210 possessions again. I'd be surprised if the game got much slower than it was before. So then you have to think, all right, what are the odds here that we get into a closeout scenario? It's that same damn thing where the Heat are at like 110 and the Hawks are at 103. And you're thinking, oh, we're in great shape. And then with 40 seconds left, the Hawks start fouling. Like a lot of time left. And then they hit a three and they foul again. And all of a sudden in eight seconds, you've got 10 points on the board. Pace-wise, it's an under. But closeout scenario, it's tough. It's not so clear-cut. I'd probably leave that one alone. I, I want more room if I'm looking at an under in a closeout game. I think closeout games, you would think they'd be the other way, but when they're earlier in the series like this, you the teams still have a little bit of energy, and you get all the fouling, and it just it racks up, you know? It racks up. T-Wolves Grizzlies. Grizz favored by 6. 232 is the total in that ballgame. And, I mean, you know, it, it's it's a similar monster here. Minnesota, even things up. They hit 237 as the combined total in that last ballgame. And they got there basically because of a three-pointer as time expired. Uh, that one was pretty much right on the number prior to it. But I do think we need to once again point out just how absurd the number of free throws have been in this series. Another 65 combined free throws, 32 turnovers, but that number's also been kind of on the high side. And then you have to play the same game. You got to look at possessions and say, all right, well, Memphis had about 116, so they were pretty close to their mark there. Minnesota, wow, 40 free throws on that Minnesota side. That's a that's a very big number. They were uh, around 110 possessions or so because they got out rebounded by a little bit um not a not a massive differential between those two things so on pace this one probably should have just eked to the under i already forgot what i said 116 117 and 110 so yeah it should have been around 227 minnesota went over their mark mostly because of getting 40 free throws in the ball game but i do think that from an actual number standpoint total of 232 on this series has been pretty accurate so far it's not a closeout game, so you don't get that little bump in the upward direction. Uh, but it's getting there. You know, we've had a ton of free throws. We've had a ton of free throws. We've had a really fast pace compared to the other games or the other series in the NBA so far. These two teams have been playing the faster one. I think Oddsmakers got this number pretty damn close to right. Grizzlies getting a lot of love. Six-point favorites at home. This is just an expectation that they're going to run away with it. I don't think they will. I think it's going to be a good ball game again. And the Suns, six-point favorite at home, six and a half at some places, total of 215 and a half. And this is an interesting one because the the Pels are showing themselves to be competitive. They beat Phoenix by 15. Suns are going to be without Devin Booker again. Chris Paul was simply as bad as he could have possibly been in that ball game. DeAndre Ayton was the only thing that kept the Suns from getting completely waxed out of the building, and he was really quite good. Jail McGee, in fact, all the big men for the Suns were pretty efficient, but they just didn't get much else. Still shot 51% somehow, but only 15 free throws to New Orleans' 42. Whoa. Whoa. I know. 
42 free throws is a lot of free throws. New Orleans had about 115, 116 possessions in that ballgame, so they were pretty much right on their number. Phoenix, I mean, kind of made the most of where they were at. They had about 105 possessions, got out-rebounded by nine again, and then the whole free throw thing committed more turnovers. So uh, not a, you know, slightly lower than what you'd expect out of them, but around 220 was the total number of possessions in that ball game. And that one, remember, ended with a posted total of 215. So it should have gone over. And odds makers have left it at about that same mark. I think they believe that the Suns are going to do a better job of maybe just taking free throws away from the Pels. And maybe that's the only real difference between these two ball games. I think that number's right again. Where I would start to look at the under again in this series is Game 6, Game 7, depending on how deep this series goes. Let's say the Suns win Game 6, they go back to New Orleans. Now you're in closeout mode, so Game 6, you want to be a little bit cautious. If it goes 7, I'd probably clobber the under, because that's just going to be an exhaustion game in every respect, every part of the word. So tough lines for tonight. This is... uh, about as tight as they're going to get, I would think. You know, a lot of our under room has been eliminated through the first four games of these different series. A couple of them obviously went over. They created kind of a secondary under bubble. But now the numbers have caught up. People remembering playoff games are slower. It's pretty straightforward. And then you just work into the equation some of those last second free throws and closeouts and other stuff that. You know, you get mixed in by pace. But, you know, pace-wise, Heat Hawks should go under, but you've got the closeout stuff. Wolves, Grizz, and Pell's Suns, though, don't have closeout. But I think those numbers are pretty damn close. Pell's Suns might just barely creep over. Barely. Again, it depends on the free throws. If they wipe out 15 Pell's free throws, then the game goes under. Because the Suns aren't getting to the line very much. Their guards don't take many free throws. And... Pels have all these wings that do. There you go. I, I, don't, I don't know if the Suns can cover that number. I, I Of the favorites, I'd probably lean Heat. I just I don't know what the Hawks are able to do with Clint Capella not at full strength. But at the same time, I, I again, I just really haven't enjoyed the sides in the playoffs so far. I lean towards looking at pace stuff, and there just isn't much, unfortunately, tonight on the pace card. Okay, let's talk about a team. I'm tired of doing lessons. We'll come back to them. Don't worry. We've got plenty more to go. We've got lessons that I've got written down. We've got uh, lessons that we'll pull from friends, confidants, other experts, things of that nature. So today, we're going to start out east. A lot of times I start west and I go east, which I feel is somewhat unfair because I live out here, so then we you know, we do the Pacific Division and then we float our way across. We're going to flip it today, and we're going to go Atlantic. Atlantic. And we're going to start with the New York Knicks, who, I know what you're thinking, Dan, why? Why would you do this to us? Well, in addition addition to being a bit of a masochist, I think it's worth pointing out how this Knicks season went. First of all, the Knicks had only one player on a per-game basis, inside the top 100. And that player was Mitchell Robinson, who got off to a slow start, but really began to find his footing the last 
month and a half, two months of the season, where he was a top 65 fantasy player. Mostly because of blocks. That's generally the way it works with him. Full season, he averaged 0.8 steals, 1.8 blocks. Final 30 games of the year, 1.2 steals, 2.4 blocks. And everything else was almost exactly the same. Playing time was almost exactly the same. Points, rebounds, field goal percent, free throw percent, all of that stayed exactly the same. But defensive stats went from 2.6 combined to 3.6 combined. It's a big jump. That's about two to three rounds of value, actually, when you're floating back first few months. Or I should say it actually went, it was a bigger jump than that because 2.6 was over the entire season. It was more like 2.2 the first three months. And then, you know, 3.6 or whatever. What did I say? 3.6 the last two months. So Mitchell Robinson was very good. He wasn't pushed by Nerlens Noel because Nerlens only played 25 games. He wasn't going to get pushed by Taj Gibson, despite Taj playing in 52 ball games, because, sorry, Taj, you're 150 years old now, so it's just not happening. Alec Burks was the second highest ranked New York Knicks player over the season. He was at 114, and that's pretty much where he hung out. He had sort of fits and starts in the last month and a half when a lot of guys were out. Burks was inside the top 90. Emmanuel quickly got going during that stretch. Drown the stretch, where at the very end, Obi Toppin got going. That was when Randall was sitting. Evan Fournier was kind of, he was very hot and cold. R.J. Barrett, despite scoring a ton of points, his efficiency was still very whack. And he finished at 264 on a per-game basis. Julius Randall, unfortunately, finished at number 124. Because all the stuff that had plagued him, that magically disappeared last season, all magically came back. Julius Randle is signed next year, the year after that, the year after that, and has a player option for 2025. But he was getting booed in New York. I don't know that they can move that contract, but he doesn't want to be there, and I don't think they want him to be there. Everything for the Knicks changes for next season based on what Julius Randle is doing, or where he is, I guess, at the end of the offseason. And so when we look at the Knicks roster, it's pretty hard to say, okay, well, here's what you can expect for next season. You kind of have to build two different lineups. There's the Knicks if Randle is there, and there's the Knicks if he isn't. If Randle's back... Most of this stuff stays the same. Derrick Rose has a shot to have fantasy value if he can play about 26 or 27 minutes a game. I don't know that his body can handle it anymore, but he's signed for next year with a team option the year after that. Alec Burks, same story. Nerlens Noel, same story. Kemba Walker, I can't imagine that he sees the floor next season, so you can pretty much just wipe him off your board. And then Evan Fournier, they gave a... a a four-year contract, too, I believe. So he's three-year contract with a team option. So he's signed next year, the year after that, and then maybe the year following. So if Randall's there, I mean, the only thing that happens is things get worse. Because all these guys come back. Derrick Rose comes back. Burks was already playing. Kemba probably not going to play, but who the hell knows. Emmanuel quickly started to play better down the stretch. So he should be a thing. Mitchell Robinson is the only question mark. He's the one guy who's not yet signed for next year. I think they have to. Can't just let a dude walk at that point, but 
I suppose we'll see. And then everybody else that's off contract is sort of inconsequential. They're still paying Joakim Noah, by the way, this last year. What I would look for as you're plotting a course is what happens if Julius Randle gets moved? Now, presumably someone would have to come back. Can't get waived. He's not going to get waived, not with four years left on a contract. So just throw that out of your brain. If he's traded, someone or some ones would have to come back with basically a matching salary, which for Randall next year, next season, is about $26 million. Which means you're going to be getting something back that you're probably going to be expecting to play. Which is why, as much as they want him gone, I don't know that they can really move Randall. So the Knicks are probably staring down the barrel of another year a lot like this last one. The only changes I could see would be, does a guy like Emmanuel quickly actually get to play a bit in a normal rotation? Because when he was playing 27 and a half minutes late in the year, he was averaging 16 points, 5 boards, 5 assists. Again, much of that was without Julius Randle. But he was a top 75 fantasy play. Alec Burks played 34 minutes a game down the stretch when all the other wings were out. Averaged 14, 6, and 4 with a steal and two and a half three pointers. He was a top 85 fantasy play. As much as we enjoyed the Obi Toppin run down the stretch, if Randall's around, you can just wipe him off the board. If Randall's around, you can wipe Evan Fournier off the board as well. These guys just didn't have fantasy game this year. And the only big question mark is, well, what if Mitchell Robinson doesn't come back? Then the Knicks are going to be forced to go pretty damn small because Nerlens Noel is not trustworthy from a health standpoint. If he's around, he would play probably enough to have fantasy value. But then you might actually see a Randall and Toppin front court. Randall and Toppin kind of splitting four and five minutes where, you know, frankly, there just aren't that many other choices. Jericho Sims was the third or fourth string center, but they're not about to force feed him 30 minutes a ball game. So a lot hinges on whether Randall's there and whether Mitchell Robinson is re-upped for this coming season. I'd triple check myself, make sure I'm not screwing something up on that front, but I'm pretty sure that he's a free agent now. I don't know how much of one. Yeah, he's he's uh he's free agent. And yeah, nothing's happened on that front. But I want I want the Knicks to be one of those teams where we're ready for what the changes might mean. Other teams, perhaps other fantasy teams, I should say, other fantasy managers, probably won't be. And they'll be out there drafting Julius Randle in the 50s, 60s, 70s again, hoping that everything magically gets itself turned around. But how could it? Where's it going to come from? Points, boards, assists, all that stuff was still there. His percentages were garbage. He doesn't get any defensive stats. And he became kind of a nuisance Bunch of guys trying to move the basketball, and then Randall stopping it. He was making them markedly worse this season. Certainly less fun to watch. But I want to hearken back to our lesson from yesterday's podcast. It's so recent. It's so fresh in our mind. I didn't do it this way, but this is the way it, it turned out with these two shows going back to back. How many guys on this Knicks team actually have guaranteed playing time for next year? Let's assume they do bring Mitchell Robinson back. He would be one. Randall would be two, but we know his fantasy stat set is crap. R.J. Barrett, same story. Who else? Burks? No. Quickly? No. Toppin? No. Fournier? Nah. 
Who besides those three guys, two of them, again, have terrible fantasy games in category leagues, sorry, specify. If you're in a points league, that changes things considerably. But who beyond those three guys is someone where you can point at them and say, oh, this dude definitely is going to play 27 minutes a game. Fournier's probably the next closest, but we've seen that he's just not aggressive with Julius Randle in the lineup. He's not going to get enough shots consistently. Derrick Rose gets added in there. He probably doesn't hit 27 minutes, and he probably takes enough away from a guy like Quickly. And Burks, you got him fighting with everybody. Cam Reddish might play next year. They've got some young guys that might slot in someplace. We just talked about it. Seventh round, eighth round, ninth round. You're looking for guys that are going to get consistent starters minutes. If someone came up to me and was like, Dan, I can promise you Emmanuel Quigley is going to play 27 minutes a game next year, then cool, I'll take him in the eighth round. I'll take him in the ninth round, whatever that might be. Or Alec Burks, I'll take him in the tenth round. I just, there's no way looking at the way this roster is currently constructed and who's still on it, with, again, Mitchell Robinson kind of being the one guy. R.J. Barrett is a team option. They're going to exercise that because he's been more than worth it. Same deal for Obi Toppin at 5 mil. Maybe they let Cam Reddish walk. I don't know. They'll pick up Quickly's team option. That's an obvious one. But then there's just there's no other guarantee. When we break these teams down, and this is the way we're going to be looking at almost everybody. By the way, uh... Not as many free agents this year as there have been the last couple. This is going to be a, an offseason of a little bit less turnover. But, you know, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll move towards that discussion at some point soon. We are looking for guys where we can lock in near starters minutes. There's going to be those handful of players that can do it in 22, 23 minutes a game, and that's fine. They are a special, unique set we will set aside. Knicks don't have those guys aside from sort of Nerlens Noel, but again, in this system, even he needs a few extra minutes. We have to be reasonable with our assessment of these guys. He's not going to do it in 18 minutes the way he did in Oklahoma City. He needs 24 in New York because of Randall and other stuff and just the way that they push him away from the bucket. At least Mitchell Robinson kind of started to assert himself later in the year. Eh, screw that. It was a very, it was a screw this mentality. He was just going for it. That was great. So you got Robinson, you got Randall, you got R.J. Barrett, and you got maybe you got Evan Fournier, but we've seen enough from these where, like, if I hadn't seen anything I, and somebody told me Evan Fournier was playing starters minutes, I'd say, yeah, okay, take a shot at him in the 10th round. But now we know he's not going to be aggressive enough. He wasn't horrible, but he wasn't good. He shot 42% from the field and 71% at the free throw line. I mean, this is like... Everybody on the team was impacted. If Fournier's numbers, percentages claw back up where they should be. With starters minutes, he would push himself probably into that 115 range. So not a disaster, especially on the head-to-head side. He was pretty durable this year. Not a disaster, but Roto, you're looking for more. So you're looking for the guys that get starters minutes, and there aren't any other ones. There's going to be the two guys getting overdrafted because they score points, there's going to be Mitchell Robinson if he gets re-signed, and then there's going to be log jams everywhere. Burks, Fournier, if Reddish, if they pick up his option, Toppin, throw him in there as sort of a big forward type. You got Quickly, Derek Rose. You can even throw Burks back into that mix at the guard spot, or he's trying to find his minutes anywhere. Too 
much log jammery. And that's the story of the New York Knicks. I'd love to be able to come on this thing and tell you guys that somehow things are just going to get better. The only way that happens is if Julius Randle gets moved. If he gets moved, everybody shoots up the board because the usage comes with it. You just wipe out 17 like ill-timed shots, slow-developing post-move shots, and all of a sudden everything gets unlocked. And we saw it down the stretch. I mean, if you look at just the last eight games of the year for the Knicks, which is like the last two weeks when Randall basically didn't play. Remember, he came back for a couple, and then he sat out the last five or six. Mitchell Robinson was inside the top 30 with three and a half blocks a night. Obi Toppin was number 32. Burks was 58. Quickly was 89. It was delightful. R.J. Barrett was still outside the top 250 because, you know, percentages do matter. Evan Fournier still couldn't get it going. He shot 39% from the field down, down the stretch, and his aggression level didn't change at all. But quickly took 15 shots a game. Toppin took 14. Burks had 11, and he was kind of orchestrating a bit. They got some steals. It was juicy, man. That was a great week and a half. That's the if Randall's gone scenario. And yeah, you know, you'll slot whoever comes back in such a trade, but I don't imagine they bring anybody back that's going to disrupt the offense the way that he did this year. And a lot of guys end up on the board. Quickly, Burks, Toppin, in addition to Robinson, who's always there and already there. I think Mitchell Robinson will probably end up being an okay value next year because he came on pretty nicely late this season and was otherwise pretty quiet throughout. All right. I like talking about a team. That was a different flavor on today's show. Different flavor. Tomorrow, Wednesday show, I haven't decided if we're going to do another team. Maybe we do a lesson. I don't know. You'll just have to come along for the ride. Thanks for doing so, by the way. Thank you guys for continuing to listen here, even in the fantasy offseason. Enjoy the playoffs, as I say at the end of every show. Shout out once again to our buddies, uh, well, really, buddy, Joe Orico over at Fantasy MLB Today. Fantasy NFL Today will likely be re-debuting next week. Really excited about that as well. My pal JP is going to be on the mic for that podcast. We're going to have flagship fantasy shows for the three majors. And who knows? Might even have hockey next year. This is cool stuff, man, here at Ethos. I'm really excited about that. Nice work, gentlemen. Everybody else listening in, go check them out. You'll love it. I'm actually trying fantasy baseball this year. I'm bad at it, but uh, Joe's going to try to cart my butt through. We'll see. I might not be savable on that front. This is Fantasy NBA today, however. That's the one that I talk about. That's the one I feel kind of confident with. Have a great Tuesday. Talk to you.